All right. I think we're ready. <clears throat> so as I mentioned, in each of the age groups that we're going to go over throughout this course, we're going to start with infancy, go into toddlers, go into uh, early childhood, middle childhood, adolescence, young adult, and through the lifespan. And within each of these domains, we're going to look at physical development, psychological development, and socio-emotional development. And so what we're going to start off with infancy, which infancy can be defined as the period of birth to about a year and a half. That's kind of, it used to be 24 months, but the more and more we're learning about infancy, we're refining it more and more as we go. So the age of infancy is getting a little bit younger. In fact, um, if you were to have taken this class, um, say 30 years ago, we would have went infancy from birth to about three, four years old is what they defined as infancy um, at that time. So we're refining our definition of infancy. And if I were to give just the most basic definition of what infancy is, it's when a child um, has complete and total dependence on their caregivers, meaning that uh, from a physical perspective, as we'll talk about, it means that the child isn't able to feed itself. It's not able to warm and cool itself. It's not able to, um, uh, you know, uh, defecate or, or urinate without any type of assistance or someone coming and taking care of it. You know, and if we think of it as more literal terms, they're not able to put their own shirt on or pull up their own pants if you, we, we want to think about it that way. So that's what we're defining as infancy. But the thing that I would really like to focus in this group is that doesn't mean there isn't incredible things that are going on in the infant's mind. Um, I think I mentioned this when we were going over Piaget's sensory motor stage is that we are learning that infants have an incredible mental life. They're actually better than us adults at doing probability and basic arithmics, like adding, subtracting, dividing, and multiplying. They actually do better than most adults do. And they're also better at identifying people who are healthy for them versus unhealthy for them. And so these are just two examples, but the more and more we're learning about infants, the more and more we're learning, they have an incredible mental life. So let's start this journey. We're going to go infancy to the uh, toddler as far as what is physical development. And we're going to start with brain development, and I want to start with some basic pretexts. Uh, for a long time, one of the biggest myths about the brain and the brain system is that human beings only use 10% of the capacity of their brain. This is uh, uh, false. This is misleading and um, is not true. We actually see with brain imagery, brain detection type of devices that our brain is on completely 24-7. Even when we're asleep, our brain remains active and continually, continually processing information through the entire aspects of the brain system. The notion that we only use 10% of our brain actually comes from our understanding of how the brain works in that we probably, even with all of our modern science, modern imaging uh, techniques, modern technologies, we only are really scratching the surface of the human brain. We really only understand about 10% of its functioning. But when we scan it with the technologies we have, your brain is firing everywhere. Um, the other thing that we need to denote is that brain and body are not separate in this sense, okay? And we'll talk about, uh, you know, when we talk about the brain-body argument, what we're actually talking about is the mind and the body separate, okay? 
and we're still arguing that mind being that thing that allows you to experience reality. But when we talk about the brain and the body, the brain isn't the separate thing that isn't um, subject to the demands of the external world, okay? And as the brain develops, the body's capabilities expand, as we will see. And as the body tries new things, the brain develops, okay? One of the things that we need to understand when we're looking at infancy, and actually when we're looking at infancy up to about six years of age, and then when we go through puberty, and then when we hit about 21 years old, is that humans are one of the very, very few species that are born with underdeveloped brains. Meaning that once mom gives birth to us, our brain is only about a half of the size it's gonna be. And it's gonna grow up to about the age of six. Um, the early childhood education folks say that 90% of the brain grows between birth and the age six. And that's kind of true because when we look at the neural connections in the brain, about 90% of it occurs between the age of zero and six. Now, the question is, is why are humans born with underdeveloped brains? Well, when we look at brain size, humans don't have the largest brain in the animal kingdom, okay? Brain size is equated to the mass of the uh, species or the animal we're talking about. So animals like elephants, animals like uh, giraffes have much larger brains than we have, much larger because of their mass to brain <clears throat> um, ratio. The only species that kind of breaks this rule are human beings. Because what human beings have is an oversized brain, specifically the cortex of the brain, in comparison to our body mass. And where is that? Why is that important according to the neuroscientists in the world? That is important because they feel that that's what makes it so humans are able to build skyscrapers, governments, educational systems, complex language, physics, making rockets go into the, in, not the oceans, into space and making it so we can explore the depths of the ocean. Because we have more brain capacity than what is actually needed to regulate our body, okay? But most of this brain size is developed after birth because what we are discovering from a biological perspective is our brains cannot get much bigger unless the pelvic region of the female body genetically and through evolution gets uh, larger. Okay, our brains were born the way we are because if we had our full developed brain, we would get stuck coming out of mom. And so for humans, we're born with an underdeveloped brain in order to get us out of mom's body. And then that's when the rest of the human brain starts to grow and develop, okay? Which means that instead of us fully developing in the biological system of the mother in, in, in the womb, for a large part, humans develop in the social, cultural, language area of the world. So when most species come out of mom, what they're trying to do is develop muscle coordination and all of those things so that they can do what their brain, quote unquote, has been programmed to do. So they won't, so, so you won't see, you know, different cultural influences, different social influences on other species because their brain has already fully developed 
to their capacity when they're born. Okay? For humans, we're different. For humans, things like culture, the social world, family is where our brain is developing, not in the biological womb of the mom. So we have to understand this from the outset um, because that's really what makes it so humans have, humans have one of the longest, um, what, what, what's it called, childhoods, as you would say, than any species alive. It literally takes humans 18 years of our life to come fully biologically and neurologically developed to where we are able to go out in the world on our own and survive without our family or parental group. And a lot of sociologists would argue that even at the age of 18, we're not capable of doing that because we need that. It's where our brain developed in, okay? So I just wanna make these pretenses as we start going through what the infant brain is experiencing. So just to talk a little bit, uh, and I, I'm hoping this is just a review, the basic unit of the brain is our neuron or the neuron cell. And these cells make up our complete nervous system. These cells are unique to the other cells we have in our body, okay? If all of the cells in our body were on the same clock, okay, meaning that once they die, they're replaced by a new cell, okay? Is human beings would have a new body about every five years because all of the other cells in the body, once they start dying, a new one replaces it, okay? And it happens for some cells, it's a four-year cycle. For some cells, it's a seven-year cycle but we literally have new bones and skin every about four to seven years. The only type of cell that does not regenerate are our nervous system cells, the cells in our brain. That's where they, the, the concept of use it or lose it comes from. Because if you don't exercise those nerve cells, those cells will die off and they won't be replaced, okay? Now, how do these cells then support themselves? They also have what's called a support cell called a glial cell. So the glial cell goes and it cleans the nerve cells in our nervous system. They're basically the, um, how would you put it? The uh, janitorial and maintenance staff of the nervous system, okay? And so they go in and they clean the cells, they get rid of all the debris and all of that stuff so that the nerve cell stays um, um, active and healthy, okay? The neuron cells work on what's called electrical chemical process, meaning that we have synapses which are shown from here where one synapse is going to release what we call a neurotransmitter. And when sufficient neurotransmitters hit this post-synatomic dendrite, which are these guys right here, it sets off what's called an um, electrical potential, okay? Which if there's enough, what it does is it creates electrical communication along the axon, which is this right here. And then at the axon terminal, what that electrical impulse does is it makes that axon release neurotransmitters to the cells that it's connected with, okay? Now, <clears throat> when we go through this class, we will talk about different neurotransmitters, but one of the things that I want you to think about at this moment is we have dopaminergic systems and we have serotonin systems. And then we have memory systems, but I just wanna right now focus on the uh, serotonin system and the dopaminergic systems. The cells that release dopamine are rewarding us, 
It's motivating us. That's the motivational systems of the brain. The serotonin system regulates our emotions such as anger, fear, happiness, sadness. Okay. And so I, I will give some examples. Uh, when you are feeling angry, your amygdala is releasing serotonin into your system and saying either calm down or uh, be more angry, okay? When you get an A on a test that was really hard and you get that really good feeling kind of emotion, that's dopamine being released in your brain because what that dopamine is saying is do that again and good job. Okay, um, some examples of uh, dopaminergic system. Humans produce the most dopamine naturally when you're having an orgasm. That's when we release the most dopamine naturally. Drugs that influence the dopamine system include methamphetamines and cocaine. And if you're wondering why people can get addicted to methamphetamine so quickly, I want you to imagine this. In the brain, methamphetamine releases five times the amount of dopamine than when you're having sexual intercourse. So if you ever wonder why people get so quickly addicted to things like methamphetamine and cocaine, kind of keep that in your mind about, because that is, that's the reason why. So some other things we should mention at this point about the nerve cell is it really has to do with this uh, axon, which releases, which is the, elect the electrical impulse goes down the, the length of the cell. Okay. Um, there, there, when we get further into this course, we're going to kind of look at this more specifically, one, during the time of adolescence, and two, the time when we're getting into older age and we start um, um, talking about different types of dementia. Because you'll notice on this sheet, on this uh, axon, it has these little nodes. These little nodes are what are called the myelin sheath, okay? Myelin is just kind of this fatty layer that sets over the cell, okay? Not all nerve cells have this myelin sheath, but this myelin sheath does two things. One, it protects the vulnerability of the cell, but two, it also speeds up the impulse the, it, it it kind of makes the impulse go from 25 miles per hour to like one 2500 miles per hour that's a weird number so if, if i were to kind of illustrate this um a non-myelin sheath when the electrical impulse is going down the cell it would look like this and and just think about the time okay with a myelin sheath, what the electrical impulse, it jumps between these little nodes. So with a myelin sheath, it is more like this, much quicker because it jumps between those, okay? When we're studying from a physical perspective, the development of children versus adolescence and on, for the most part, for children and infants, we have a largely unmyelinated brain. So our brain is much, much slower than post-adolescence, okay? What happens during a time of puberty, it happens in about a three to six month uh, process, is during puberty, our brain goes from about 10% myelinated to almost 90 to 100% myelinated, meaning that in just a short of a time, in just a short period of time, we go from driving a Mazda Miata 
to driving an indie car okay or a or or a what are those ones that go in circles anyways from going from a, a a jalopy to a race car okay and 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 when we get to adolescence this is where we will start talking about when an adolescent says and i think i've mentioned this before when an adolescent says i don't know why i did something they're probably right because their brain is going so much faster than what it was during childhood. The important part for our study right now, when we're going through infancy into early childhood to middle childhood, is understanding that the child brain is not as fast as us as adults. And that's why a child would sit in the middle of a street and watch a car coming to them at 50 miles per hour and just stand there. Whereas if you put an adult in that situation, they would move out of the way. But it is also, and this is important, why do we think we have a slower brain during childhood? Because a slower brain learns more rapidly than an accelerated brain. Okay, I'm going to say that again. A slower brain learns more rapidly than an accelerated myelinated brain, okay? This is why between the age of zero to six, we develop language. We develop our understandings. This is when we can learn things like mathematical concepts, the easiest, human relationships, the easiest. All of those things that we talked about in those theories that we, we introduced in the core, in the beginning of the course, Okay, is and, and it's also why it's good when your kiddos in your life are asking the same question over and over and over. We as adults need to slow down and realize we can answer that question quickly, but kiddos have to process it over and over and over because they have that slower brain system that is trying to make those neural connections stronger so that they can develop the things we call human, which are language, which are um, problem solving, all of those things that we, we say are uniquely human, okay? So keep this in mind as we go through infancy, early childhood. We're born with an underdeveloped brain that is gonna develop in a social cultural setting. And we're born with a brain that is much slower than the adult counterparts of that brain system. But that what advantage that gives us as human beings is it makes it so that we can learn things easier because our brain isn't going so rapidly, okay? Oh, I forgot these other ones. We should say, let me. Um, all right. When we are born, we do have 100 billion nerve cells, uh, but synapses are largely not formed at birth. So they're there and they're looking to make connections. And they're going to make those connections again in that social cultural language place, okay? And I think I've mentioned this before, uh, just think about the incredible amount of information that is being learned at this period. Between the age of zero and six, the average child will know 60,000 words. That's pretty incredible. And then after six, we start to trim those words down to the ones that we most use. So we go from at about the age of six to 60,000 words to when we're adults, we're down somewhere between 1,000 to 5,000 words, dependent upon the ones we use most commonly, okay? So... This is the world our brain is existing in and, and why this early childhood period is so important to learning and language and development, okay? 
we talked about myelination. I can't remember if there's more on the slide. Um, insulating neurotransmitter stimulates neurons provide. Okay, all right. I just want to go over some of the structures of the brain so that we're all on the same page because this also deals a lot with infant development and why infants um, kind of sometimes look kind of awkward. <laughs> um, and we're going to talk about the two systems. One is the limbic system and the brain stem. Okay. If we look at the evolution of the brain, whether we're talking the human species or any animal species, any animal that exists that has a brain, has a brain stem and has a limbic system. It is what's sometimes referred to as the reptilian brain, sometimes referred to as the primitive brain because any species that has a brain has these two systems, okay? And it's largely involved with autonomic processes, such as uh, body temperature, heart rate, hunger, thirst, um, hormonal systems that regulate you know, uh, the body's response to external stimuli, such as responding to danger or something like that. Uh, it is responsible for memory formations, and it's, it's, it has very, a lot of structures that deal with memory and memory systems, okay? Uh, it also regulates things such as intimate love, whether, who we fall in love with, occurs right here in the brainstem in the paralympic system right here that I'm showing here. Um, our sexual drive is driven by the limbic system. Again, it starts a little higher and goes on the other side of the brain. There are actually two systems in the brain. So sexuality and intimacy are two separate processes in the brain. Okay. This is the limbic system. What sets on top of the limbic system is the cerebral cortex, okay? And again, um, dependent upon the species will determine the thickness of different areas of the cerebral cortex. So in this other graph here on the right, we see that um, the visual system is at the back or the base of the cerebral cortex. So we actually see, when your mom says she has eyes in the back of her head, she actually had her eyes in the back of her head. That's because that's where that information is processed. Um, so species who have much superior vision than humans will have a much larger visual cortex. So if we look at, for example, birds who have to have very acute visual systems, their visual cortex in the back is very large, okay? If we look at rodents and, and we look at uh, the auditory cortex, which sits right here, and we look at rodents who highly rely on their auditory system, they have a thicker auditory cortex, okay? What do humans have that are larger than other species? Well, that's our frontal cortex, okay? It's this area that I just put in the square because what do humans specialize in? We specialize in social affiliation and things such as problem solving and, and, and wondering, like how do I build a house out of rubble? How do I make black tar in the earth become a fuel? Um, how do I make energy out of the wind or out of the sun? Okay. Humans, we have the largest frontal cortex of other species. And I will also say we also have the thickest cortex compared to other species as well. Okay, so that's the uniqueness of the human brain. But uh, if we're going to say one species is superior, 
our visual cortex is not as good as say a hawk or an eagle. And our auditory cortex is not as good as, as the example of rodent, a dog or a cat, okay? Um, and when we look at the olfactory cortex, we know that humans uh, don't have as large as a, in that area as a dog and a cat is another example because their, their, their olfactory senses are much more acute than ours is, okay? Um, when we look at the way the cortex develops, and this is important to keep in mind, is it develops from the back and develops in the direction towards the frontal cortex, okay? So when we're born, the most well-developed areas of the brain tend to be, actually it tends to be this area right here, Okay, this is the gustatory cortex, the auditory cortex, and then it develops in this direction, okay? And as we will see, infants are not born with great vision. They're not born with great motor or sensory coordination. And this last part of the brain that develops this prefrontal cortex, which is really kind of the, I'll just put it, it gives us a sense of relationships to the rest of the world, enabling us to think about it and to plan and execute appropriate behaviors. This area, this prefrontal cortex, which just sets just right behind our eye sockets, don't develop until we're around 21 years of age or fully develops until we're around 21 years of age, okay? So when we're looking at physical development, we're born with a pretty good auditory system, okay? We actually have lots of evidence to show that we can actually start hearing in mom's womb um, and, and those types of things. The next thing that's gonna develop is our visual system, okay? The next thing that's going to develop is our ability to understand where we are in space. So, and then that's going to allow us to develop the idea that we can interact with the world. Remember Piaget's sensory motor, where we coordinate our, um, sensory experience with our motor experience. And that's what's going to develop next. And then we start to develop the abilities to develop language, to develop understandings of the world, math problems, and all of those other things. And it's directly related with how the brain develops once we are born, okay? And there's some other concepts that we should understand about um, uh, the brain and brain processes, just some different um, terms. One is plasticity. And this is the ability of an immature brain to change in form and function, okay? This is basically, if we go back to this diagram of the brain, and let's say an infant is born with damage to their visual cortex, okay? For infants, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will be blind because what will happen is instead of this damaged area processing visual information, this area in the auditory system or this area in the, the, the association area will take over that functioning, okay? So, and this can occur in infancy, and as we age, our brains become less and less plastic, okay? And that's why it's important to catch neurological uh, disorders at the earliest age possible because the earlier we can detect uh, hearing issues, motor coordination issues, visual issues, 
we can then work with the infant and have other areas of the brain take over that functioning, okay? And that's what's meant by plasticity. Um, and, you know, when we look at, for example, different types of disorders, uh, such as schizophrenia, um, uh, early onset schizophrenia, which is schizophrenia that develops early, early in childhood, the person with that disorder is much, much more likely to be functional, meaning they're going to be able to hold a job. They're going to be able to uh, be successful in school. They'll be able to be successful um, in relationships. Okay. But if we compare that to late onset schizophrenia, which usually develops around 18 to 19 years of age when a child or an adolescence, we should say, first leaves home. Because the brain isn't, doesn't have as much plasticity as it did in its early childhood, um, many individuals with late onset schizophrenia are much more likely to become non-functional meaning that they're probably going to end up um, being dependent on a family care system, if not a, a, a mental type of hospital, okay? Because the brain isn't able to adjust to these new experiences that the brain is going through, okay? And so that's what's meant by plasticity. That's why when babies are born, they give them a neurological test. They'll uh, do the little pokes on their on their toes to see if they have different reflexes and stuff, because in the absence of that, we want to start training that into the area of the infant's brain that can take over that functioning. Okay. Uh, the other issue that we need to talk about, so that's plasticity. We already talked about this uh, synogenesis. The infant brain rapidly starts to connect with other nerve cells at such a faster rate than any other time of our development. So their little brains are like supercharging itself, okay? Um, but then what happens is a lot of these new connections that the infant brain is making uh, there's a concept of use it or lose it, okay? And so in the beginning, through the first, you know, infant stage, our brain is becoming connected at rates much higher than, uh, than any other time in our life. And then what starts to happen at the end of infancy and going into early childhood is the brain will start pruning off those connections it doesn't think are necessary. And it's kind of a use it or lose it scenario, okay? And that's why when we look at things like language development, we say the golden time for language development is infancy through early childhood and those types of things, because that's when the brain is most connected. As we get into later childhood, adolescence and adulthood, it's harder for the brain to make new connections and to make new um, um, processes. The, probably a good example of this is when an infant isn't exposed to other languages, okay? So uh, an infant through childhood um, uh, learns different sounds, but then through the process of language development, an infant loses the ability to hear certain sounds in different languages, okay? So a good example of that is um, R's and T's in the English version versus Asianatic lang languages. You'll hear a lot of Asians use a R sound instead of a V sound. It's because they can't hear the the sound, so they substitute it with an r sound. Okay, especially new immigrants coming here to the United States, and you know you can hear a lot of 
jokes about the errors of, of Asian Attic people and those kinds of things um, and, and the differences in language. But the same for us. They hear a sound that is close to the, but if you were raised here in just the United States and, and here is that they don't hear themselves mispronouncing the word the. They hear a different thing that we don't hear. But what we hear is the closest thing, which is our, our sound. So our brain tries to fill in the sound that we're supposed to be hearing, but we're actually having two separate experiences in the sounds that we are hearing. Um, you know, I, uh, my, my, my current uh, spouse, she, her, her primary language is Spanish uh, because her family comes from Mexican descent. Uh, my primary, primary language is English, and I felt horribly at Spanish because I have damage to some areas of my brain, which I'll get to later in the course. Um, and it's so interesting for me to go visit her family that, where they speak completely in Spanish because I will hear things that my brain fills in with what it thinks it should be hearing. But then when I try to express that back to my wife, she looks at me like, what world were you existing in when we said that? And it's such an interesting experience um, that, that I have with my wife because there are certain sounds in the Spanish language and the Mexican Spanish language that don't exist in the English American language. And because we didn't, because I wasn't exposed to that early in childhood, I can go to my, my, my spouse's house and they can speak Spanish. And there's two things that happen is everything sounds continuous to me. Okay, if you've ever heard someone in a Spanish, in a different language than what you're uh, exposed to, it sounds like they're just saying long sounds with no breaks. But as we speak English here, we can hear the breaks in our sentences, right? You can hear the breaks in our language. But when they're listening to us talk, when they're listening to us as American English speakers, they don't hear the breaks in our words. They hear it as all one continuous nonsense. And that's the other issue that, that I'm trying to bring up about this use it or lose it is these language differences that we will um, go through in this course. Um, we'll get to this brain development experience, expectancy experience de dependence here in just a minute. Uh, but I want to kind of move um, to things that sensations and perceptions and um, this is a, something we should talk about in the guise of especially infant development, okay? First of all, we have to say that there's a difference between a sensation receiving information from the external world and perceptions, our interpretation of those sensations, okay? Sensations allow infants to learn about the world they live in and how that is supposed to happen. And probably one of the most unique human traits, and we're not the only species that do this. Um, we, we know that elephants are um, primate cousins, as we would call them, are capable of doing this. There's evidence that dolphins have this ability is one of the very first things that we develop as far as sensations is this thing called mirror neuroning, okay? Mirror neuroning is when you're paying attention to the person that is sitting across from you. The neurons that are firing in their brain start to fire in your brain. I want you to think about how cool that actually is. We're, we're actually becoming physically connected when we pay attention to a person next to us. Literally, we start to mimic each other's brains. 
I think it's cool. Um, but we know that this rapidly develops in infants. And if you remember, when we go back to what we talked about with Eric Erickson, and we talked about the trust versus mistrust. And when I gave the mistrust example, I told everybody, don't pay attention to what I say, but the emotion that I'm expressing it in. All right. Why? Because what we know in our little infant brains is that one of the first things that they're capable of doing is mirror neuroning emotions. So when you're angry in front of an infant, those anger neurons in your brain will instantly and almost automatically start firing in your infant's brain. When you're happy, it has the same effect because that's how our infants are learning the social world. That's how our infants are learning reactions to the world. And this is also why trauma in infancy and early childhood has such a huge impact on their psychological well-being. Uh-oh, we turned it um, and, and that's why you know that um, uh, impact of trauma, impact of um, a stress and anxiety from being neglected and all of those things have a much larger impact on infants into early childhood than it does at other times because the mirror neuroning system is fully and completely active during this age group. And then as we age, some of our systems are high, some of our systems remain low, but also as we age, um, we also know, we got a small screen here. We also know that we do selective mirror neuroning. So as an adult, for you to have the same neural experience as someone else, we have to pay attention to them, right? In infancy, it just is an automatic process, all right? Whoops. So we're going to end with this uh, idea today, um, and then we'll get into the other sensory uh, five senses. Um, one of the things that we know and, and, and I've mentioned is that infants have very poor vision. When we're born, we're, we're born with a 20 to 400 vision. Remember that Normal healthy vision is 2020. All right. When an infant is born, it's 2400. Okay. And we also know that infants are attracted to high contrast, and that includes faces. And I'll get to this in a minute. But this is also just so when we're talking about a biological perspective. This is why we, we think that, that that's why the female breast is located where it's at. Because at the distance from the female breast to the female face, an infant can actually completely see mom's face as she is breastfeeding. So it creates this visual connection between the mother and the child. This is why when um, an infant needs to be bottle fed, it's recommended that you put the infant as close to your face as possible because it's the same contract, con uh, same um, uh, concept, okay? The other thing that we know, and, and we'll, I'll explain why this is important when we get to attachment and, and whatnot, but just know that that visual connection is really important. And that's why we think that the uh, breasts are located approximately 12 inches from the face, okay? And when we talk about high contrast, um, this is what we're talking about. 
infants prefer um, photo three versus photo one. They would prefer zebras than a completely colorful and amazing room, okay? Um, if, again, as a recommendation, if you have an infant, this is why it's recommended that you don't uh, feed the infant or anything in a really, really bright room, okay? That, that, that light should be lowered so it creates that higher contrast in mom or dad's face so that the infant can become more and more familiar and feel more and more comfortable with the adult that's feeding them. This is why in, in childcare centers, they're getting away from colors everywhere and big bright rooms everywhere to more toned down colors with natural lighting because that creates the ultimate environment for a child to grow and develop in because they're not being so distracted. Their brain isn't trying to process all of this stuff that at that developmental point, it's not capable of processing it. So when you have an infant room that has whole bunches of colors and everything else, it's actually overwhelming the infant's brain. And you will find that your infant might develop slower psychologically and emotionally. And you'll find that the infant is much, much more fussy and much more um, 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 difficult, as I would say. These type of spaces work great for adults. We love color. We love all of that stuff. Not so good for our kiddos. Okay. Right, and so what we'll do, uh, because I want to spend some time on hearing, smell, taste, and touch, and pain, um, we're going to go ahead and hit these uh, these uh, other senses uh, this coming Monday. <laughs> I forget it's Wednesday already. Um, we'll we'll hit on these this coming Monday, um, but I do want to stop. <laughs>